This podcast has been made possible by our local sponsor, Mutual Materials. They also help make Portland possible in a way, since a lot of this city was built with their products. That cool old brick building, it could be Mutual Materials. And the exposed brick wall designed into a coffee shop or store, it might be Mutual's slim brick tile. What about outdoor spaces? Paved patios, retaining walls, fire pits? Those might be made with Mutual Materials too. For over 120 years, Mutual Materials has been building beauty that lasts across the Northwest. You're listening to In Search of Portland. This is a personal journey, exploring the Rose City's architectural and cultural landmarks, forgotten gems, and the dreamers who populate them. My name is Brian Libby, and I've spent 20 years writing about local architecture and the arts. On season two of this podcast, we'll continue talking with a diverse group of creative minds and community leaders about how Portland became Portland and where we're headed. Thanks again for joining us. This is our second season of the podcast and our 17th episode. I mention this because the building we're featuring today could easily have come first. After all, it's my favorite work of architecture in the city. This building has played host to a parade of superstars, from Blazers and Beatles to Obama and the Dalai Lama, which is to say nothing of the actual parade running through it every year. I'm talking about Veterans Memorial Coliseum, or as it was known until a 2011 renaming, and as I still prefer, simply Memorial Coliseum. For quite a while, I've held off on featuring this building on the podcast. That's because about 12 years ago, I got involved in trying to save the Coliseum from demolition. Thankfully, that preservation campaign was successful. Yet, I wasn't quite sure how to tell the story. I felt a little funny, honestly, talking about myself, even in a very minor role. Finally, though, I realized that In Search of Portland is all about sharing my favorite places, especially when there's something hidden that we can uncover, or in this case, a curtain we can open. That makes Memorial Coliseum ideal. While it was perhaps the city's most prominent building for much of the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, the Coliseum's greatest architectural feature, the thing that makes it one of a kind in the world, is still largely hidden and unknown. That's the view you're supposed to have from the arena seats to the outside. For example, I once watched the sunset over the entire downtown Portland skyline from my seat inside this arena. It was incredible. Yet the view I experienced that night has been deliberately blocked for 99% of the building's history. What's more, 12 years after it was saved from demolition and five years after it was named a national treasure by the National Trust for Historic Preservation, Memorial Coliseum still needs a full-scale restoration. Before we go any further, though, I'd like to take you back in time to a warm, sunny Sunday afternoon in June of 1977, as the Coliseum became ground zero 
for the most joyous moment in Portland's history. That, of course, was the legendary Trailblazers radio announcer Bill Shonnelly calling the end of Game 6 of the 1977 NBA Finals, in which an underdog Portland team, led by Bill Walton and Maurice Lucas, came back from a two-games-to-none deficit to win the championship against Julius Dr. J. Irving and the heavily favored Philadelphia 76ers. In the Oregonian newspaper the next day, reporters Robert Olmos and Steve Erickson wrote, quote, it was like the fall of Rome, the opening of the West, and the discovery of atomic power. The fall of Rome because Philadelphia 76er coach Gene Chu's empire collapsed. The opening of the West because when the horn sounded ending the game, 12,951 fans stomped, cheered, cried, and stampeded onto the court where the trailblazers had just made history. The discovery of atomic power because, well, you should have been there. A stranger in town would have thought Portland had gone mad. He would have been right. Blazer mania had become a reality. End quote. But let's go further back for a moment to the Coliseum's beginnings. The arena was first conceived in the 1950s, a time when the West Coast of the United States was getting serious about professional sports. While the Coliseum was under construction, Major League Baseball's Brooklyn Dodgers and New York Giants moved to Los Angeles and San Francisco, the year the Coliseum was completed, Pro Football's Oakland Raiders and Los Angeles Chargers were founded, and the NBA's Minneapolis Lakers moved to Los Angeles. Two years after the Coliseum was built, the NBA's Philadelphia Warriors moved to the Bay Area. With these teams came a wave of new stadiums and arenas, Dodger Stadium, the Fabulous Forum, Candlestick Park. But unlike any of those cities, Portland in the mid-20th century didn't have a professional sports team to anchor such a project. Yet some locals argued that we could only get a basketball team or a football team if we had the facilities to house them, which turned out to be true eventually. The Trailblazers played their first season in 1970 as the Coliseum celebrated its 10th anniversary. At one time, Memorial Coliseum was imagined in tandem with a stadium project called the Delta Dome with some even arguing that the two venues might together allow Portland not only to attract NBA and NFL teams, but maybe even the Olympic Games. This was all, of course, underscored by an American economy booming in the 1950s and 60s, as the generation that had won World War II was eager to remake our built environment. This was an era of what was euphemistically called urban renewal, when countless inner-city neighborhoods nationwide were demolished for freeways and huge redevelopments, displacing countless homes and families, almost always minorities. Here in Portland, the South Auditorium District downtown replaced a longtime Jewish neighborhood. And in North and Northeast Portland, a combination of Interstate 5, Memorial Coliseum, and Emanuel Hospital 
took up much of what had been the Albina neighborhood, which by that time had become principally African-American. Memorial Coliseum's design, however, was something special, so much so that today, 60 years later, this is the only former home of an NBA team that continues with its original purpose intact. Why is Memorial Coliseum still here? I think two principal reasons. First, there's its unique size niche within the city. As a third-party economic study commissioned by Mayor Charlie Hale's office found, the Coliseum's seating capacity is about halfway between the 20,000-seat Moda Center next door and the downtown concert halls topping out at around 3,000 seats. Second, the Coliseum is a -a one-of-a-kind work of architecture, sitting on a raised plinth across from downtown like a glass-and-steel version of the Acropolis. Memorial Coliseum was designed by one of the great architecture firms of the 20th century, Skidmore, Owings & Merrill. Founded in Chicago in 1936, the firm has designed skyscrapers and landmarks all over the world, including two buildings that have for a time enjoyed the title of tallest in the world, the Sears Tower in Chicago and the current record holder, the Burj Khalifa Tower in Dubai. SOM also designed the One World Trade Center in New York City, also known as the Freedom Tower, as well as landmarks here in Oregon, like Autzen Stadium in Eugene and the U.S. Bancor Tower here in Portland, better known as Big Pink. In the latter half of the 20th century, SOM became known as the premier designer of the glass-walled American office tower, the kind that TV and movie tycoons like J.R. Ewing and Gordon Gecko might seek out. From the 1950s until the early 80s, SOM had an office here in Portland. The city's greatest architect, Pietro Belusky, had left town in 1951 to become dean of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology School of Architecture and sold his firm to SOM. Belusky had designed the nation's first glass office tower, the Equitable Building here in Portland in 1947. So to SOM, they were taking on a valuable staff in a time when demand for new office towers was high. So the firm was ideally positioned for the Memorial Coliseum Commission. This was a time when modernist architecture was all about glass and steel. In later years, modernism would become enamored with concrete and brutalism, with windows scarce as energy became expensive in the 1970s. Yet in the 1950s, those days were still ahead when SOM and its glass skyscraper specialists set to work on in the arena. And sure enough, they conceived Memorial Coliseum as what lead SOM architect Myron Goldsmith and his team likened to a glass tower turned on its side. Yet this was something nobler than an office tower, a public building where people of all walks of life could come together, with natural light piercing the glass facade like a prism. Back when we were campaigning to save Memorial Coliseum from demolition in 2009 and then again in 2014, I used to tell people that I could communicate the essence of this building's architecture in two pen strokes on a piece of paper. First, I would draw a rectangle, and then I would draw an upturned half circle inside it. In 20-plus years of writing about architecture and design, about movies and art and music and other creative disciplines, I've learned that often the connecting thread among great works is that a powerful original idea never gets lost along the way. And you can see that with Memorial Coliseum. It's just a curvy concrete bowl inside a glass box. And the degree to which the architects maintained that simplicity is astonishing. For example, it's almost twice as big as a full Portland city block. And yet the entire arena stands on just four columns. I mean, 
There are more than four columns in this tiny two-bedroom apartment I'm talking to you from now. And the Coliseum's concrete seating bowl stands completely untouched by the glass box outside. SOM's lead architect for the Coliseum, Myron Goldsmith, had been a disciple of iconic architect Ludwig Mies van der Rohe, who coined the phrase, less is more. Though it's a gorgeous glass box on the outside, the Coliseum was designed not as an object, but as an experience, a huge gathering space for tens of thousands, but where you can be connected to the outside like no other arena. A decade ago, I got to interview a member of the design team named Bill Rousey, and I remember him telling me, quote, I actually get lost in some of the other buildings I've designed, but you can never get lost in the Coliseum. All you have to do is look out at the city. Think about this for a moment, especially if you've been to the Moda Center or other arenas. Think of that moment when you come into the concourse from the arena, and because there's no glass, you have no idea if you're on the north, south, east, or west side of the building. That happens to me every time I go to the Moda Center, but it never happens in the concourse of the Coliseum, with its 300-foot walls of glass. Then there's that view from inside the arena itself that I mentioned. Tragically, none of my family or friends who I grew up with here in Oregon have experienced the building with its curtain open, which allows views from this seating bowl to the outside. The concrete bowl only goes halfway up, but for almost every event at the Coliseum over the past 60 years, a black fabric curtain between the top of the seating bowl and the ceiling has blocked the view. But if you ever get a chance to visit Memorial Coliseum with an event with the curtain open, be it the Grand Floral Parade during Rose Festival or the occasional daytime Portland Winterhawks hockey matinee, being there is a breathtaking experience, one of the largest buildings in the city with sunlight pouring through two-story glass walls on all four sides right into the bowl. And don't forget the sunken gardens at the Coliseum's entrance with the names of Portlanders killed in action during World War II and the Korean War, inscribed on massive polished stone slabs, prefiguring Maya Lin's iconic Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C. From the time of its 1960 opening, the Coliseum began hosting major concerts and sporting events, but that really ramped up in the middle of the decade. Take 1965, when college basketball's Final Four was held there in March, with UCLA defeating Michigan to set in motion an astonishing 10-championship dynasty for the Bruins and head coach John Wooden. But that 1965 Final Four wasn't even the biggest event of that year at the Coliseum. That would be a concert by the Beatles. The band's 1965 album Help had just been released earlier that month, and the accompanying movie was set for release just three days after the concert. John Lennon actually kissed the ground when the band arrived in Portland. Earlier that morning, their flight from Minneapolis-St. Paul had seen one of the plane's engines catch fire. The plane landed without incident, but it had shaken Lennon, who was also heard to shout, Beatles, women, and children first! The band performed two shows at the Coliseum that day before a total of 20,000 people, including my mom, who attended the matinee. Also there in the audience that day were some celebrities eager to meet the Beatles, including several members of the Beach Boys, their biggest American rivals for pop chart supremacy. One of the most famous American poets of the 20th century, Allen Ginsberg, was also at the concert. He even wrote a poem called Portland Coliseum about the show, referring to the Coliseum as the New World Auditorium. Let's listen to a short clip of Ginsberg reading a portion of this poem. 
Portland Coliseum. Brown piano, white round spotlight, Leviathan Auditorium, ribbed and wired, hanging organs and vox and black battery, a single whistling sound of 10,000 children's larynxes, a singing pierced the ears and flowing up the belly, the bliss of the moment arrived, apparition, four brown jacket and Christ hair boys, goofed Ringo batting the round white drum, silent George, fluff hair, patient soul of horse, short black-skulled Paul Witt, thin guitar, Lennon the captain, his mouth a triangular smile, all jumped together to end some tearful memory song, ancient two years, and the million children of the thousand worlds bounce in their seats, bash each other's sides, press their legs together nervous to the move of the black knees of the musicians, scream again and clap hand, become one animal in the New World Auditorium. That was Allen Ginsberg reading from Portland Coliseum. When I think of my own Memorial Coliseum memories, they start with those great 80s Blazer teams. But in 1992, I also got to attend the first ever game played by the Dream Team, a United States Olympic team made up of pro players. It was absolutely incredible. Just a few weeks after the Blazers had lost the NBA Finals to Michael Jordan's Chicago Bulls, I saw Jordan and Blazers hero Clyde Drexler take the Coliseum court together as teammates, alongside fellow Hall of Famers Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Charles Barkley, Carl Malone, and Patrick Ewing. The USA defeated Cuba that day by 79 points, and I remember afterward the Cuban players asking the Americans to take a picture together, more like fans than competitors. I have so much great rock and roll history to tell you about, because in addition to the Beatles, an incredible roster of famous artists played at the Coliseum during the zenith of their careers in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. David Bowie, Aretha Franklin, Bob Dylan, Elton John, Fleetwood Mac, and many, many more. However, I'm going to save some of those stories for the end of the show because I've already talked a lot and we have two interviews to share with you that I'm excited about. But stay tuned because we have a couple more great audio clips to share including Jimi Hendrix playing at the Coliseum in 1968 and Barack Obama speaking there during his successful 2008 presidential campaign. In the meantime, our first interview is with architect Stuart Emmons, my co-founder in the Friends of Memorial Coliseum. Stuart has been a local architect for over 25 years, as well as a city council candidate and an affordable housing activist. At the beginning of his career, following architectural studies at Harvard University, Stewart also worked for the firm that designed Memorial Coliseum, Skidmore, Owings, and Merrill. Together, beginning in 2009, Stewart and I ran the grassroots campaign to save Memorial Coliseum from demolition. That spring, Mayor Sam Adams had announced that the Coliseum would be torn down so that a minor league baseball stadium could be built for the Portland Beavers after that team was kicked out of downtown's Providence Park following the stadium's conversion to soccer only for the Portland Timbers. But after overwhelming citizen opposition to the Coliseum demolition plan, Mayor Adams reversed course. People have often asked me what new purpose Memorial Coliseum ought to have knowing that the larger Moda Center is next door. But actually, in 2012, a citizen advisory committee appointed by Mayor Adams found that the arena didn't need a new purpose. It already is a busy multi-purpose arena. 
A third-party economic study commissioned by Adams' successor, Mayor Charlie Hales, found that a restored Coliseum would generate more than $2 billion in economic impact over 20 years. For the second interview, I wanted to look to the future and to look beyond Memorial Coliseum to how we can build a vibrant, high-density, walkable central city neighborhood here in what's long been an urban planning disaster at the Rose Quarter. So I talked to Rukaya Adams, the chief investment officer for the nonprofit Meyer Memorial Trust, who is also a co-founder of the Albina Vision Trust, which seeks to restore the diverse neighborhood of Albina, including the Rose Quarter, through a lens of equity and with a restored Memorial Coliseum as one of its centerpieces. I've known Rukaya for several years now, and she's got a brilliant mind and an exceptionally thoughtful, warm, empathetic personality. And following through with Alpina Vision is something Memorial Coliseum very much needs, a restoration not just of this classic arena itself, but of the neighborhood around it. After decades of inertia, there's reason to believe that the future is bright for this arena. And that's appropriate, because I've never experienced a building so full of light. In the past, they've held not just sporting events and concerts at Memorial Coliseum, but even the occasional church service. And I think that's appropriate, because at its heart, this is a kind of secular cathedral where we can come together, delighting in the talents of musicians, athletes, motorcycle daredevils, and the occasional great leader. So let's get started with the interviews. And thanks again for listening. Stuart, thanks for joining us on In Search of Portland. Nice to be here, Brian. Thanks for inviting me. Well, you know, I first met you, I think, in about 1999 or 2000. And uh, I remember reading an op-ed piece that you wrote in the Oregonian. Uh, I think that was how I was introduced to you, actually, because I contacted you af- or afterward. And uh, it said yeah. basically that kind of Portland architects needed to, your fellow Portland architects and yourself needed to kind of step up. And, and you were kind of challenging all of us to, in the architecture community to, or, or people there to, to, to do better. And uh, I remember I was a young critic at the time writing about movies and, and I remember it resonating with me that you're kind of, you know, just looking your own community in the eye and, and challenging people. So what do you remember about that? Well, it was uh, 1999 and um, I was seeing a lot of uh, new, there was quite a bit of growth at that period and seeing a lot of uh, multifamily housing projects going up. Uh, I think the Pearl District was uh, new buildings were going there and whatever. And um, the new, a lot of the new work, most of the new work going up was, uh, you know, had a lot, there's a lot to be desired on the design end. Um, it felt like people were just putting up product and, and not taking the uniqueness of Portland and, 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 or the site and, and the designs. And so we wrote a, piece, uh, an op-ed piece that said downtown design is in trouble. And uh, and it really kicked off, I think, a real discussion uh, with people about um, what is, you know, uh, what's being put up in our city. And we were called into the mayor's office, uh, my wife and I, and gave a slideshow um, to the mayor's staff. Uh, and then, uh, then the, you know, that the design awards, um, Mayor's Design Award came off of that. Uh, our Design Festival came off of that in uh, 2003 and 2004 at PNCA. And, uh, you know, looking back, you know, that was uh, obviously 20, now 22 years ago. 
And um, yeah, I think I think design has, has gotten a lot better in Portland um, in the in this in this in the last two decades. That's great. That's great. So maybe we could flash forward now to uh, um, I remember this moment at the Left Bank building across from the Coliseum. I think it was April, mid-April of 2009. And uh, Sam Adams, Mayor Adams had announced his plan to demolish the Coliseum for minor league baseball park. And um, uh, he was kind of surprised that there was a a big turnout there, but it wasn't uh, a group of people excited about a new uh, minor league ballpark. It was people in opposition to the Coliseum. uh, And so, uh, what do you remember from that night? Oh, that was a wild one. That <laughs> was, uh, we were, um, it was over at the left bank and I walked in and uh, one of the um, uh, fairly uh, prominent uh, city uh, people who had been working in a big agency, directing a big agency, came up to me and said, hi, Stu, we're going to tear that mother down. And, um, <laughs> and uh, there was, a, you know, the mayor's office, um, the, there was a lot of power behind tearing the building down. And so um, this was a presentation of, uh, of options uh, to, um, you know, for solutions for the, the Coliseum. So we, the, the planning director um, was in a really <laughs> awkward spot and had to, uh, they had to present these three options. Well, all the options were identical. They all tore the Coliseum down. It's like they moved the baseball stadium five degrees in one direction, one option, and five degrees in the other direction, the other option. <laughs> so I was standing in the back row with a friend of mine, Randy Higgins, and Randy just started yelling about uh, to the plan, <laughs> the planning director, and then the whole place erupted. And um, uh, nobody liked the options. They said, you can't tear the building down. And so Sam took over the microphone to do, to do a walk around uh, to see if he could calm things down a little bit. And um, I said it was like taking a, I don't know, a Mark Rothko, throwing that in the trash and putting up a Norman Rockwell and all these other quotes. And um, Thomas Lauderdale was there. We went out to the, uh, and of course, the left bank overlooked the Coliseum. And when we when we finally got out of that room, I mean, everybody decided we better get out of here. This place is just getting too hot. So Sam um, Adams was coming out and Thomas Lauderdale said, looked at the Coliseum and said, Sam, and he was one of his biggest supporters, said, Sam, you can't tear that building down. And we were all uh, we were all saying the same thing. And uh, so that, and, and Brian, you were very involved in that too. And, um, and that started it. And we, uh, we started a, a huge campaign right after the left bank that, that uh, you know, I, I think we saved that building pretty rapidly. Uh-huh. Um, some pretty significant forces, uh, City Hall being one of them, and some of the wealthiest people in Portland uh, on, behind it as well. Yeah. Um, so it was, yeah. It was uh, yeah, left bank story was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, I later found out that uh, Thelonious Monk had played at a jazz club in that building. And I think like wow. uh, the creative energy was with us, you know, that night. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, 
You know, I'd also like to ask you about the firm behind Memorial Coliseum, Skidmore, Owings, and Merrill. And uh, if I remember right, you as a, a architect earlier in your career worked for SOM and, and uh, you know, we know they or they originated in, in Chicago and New York, but, yeah. you know, they've had this reach all over the nation and the world. And, and, you know, we could talk about them in any number of different decades or eras, like, you know, 1970 Chicago with the Sears Tower and the John Hancock building or the 1950s in New York with, uh, you know, a masterwork like Lever House, or we could talk about, um, uh, a more recent era like the new World Trade Center. And so, you know, what's your take on SOM, uh, either based on your own experience or, or you know, the, the kind of legacy that you knew to be behind the Coliseum? Yeah, well, I was, uh, that was my first job at it. Uh, I was um, between uh, Pratt and Harvard. I was uh, worked at SOM in New York. And um, the New York office was, uh, I, that was in uh, 1985 and 86, and they were just, quote, post-modernizing Skidmore Owings and Merrill at that point. And we were working on some really hideous buildings, but uh, be, just even a few, and uh, David Childs was brought up from Washington, D.C. office to, to do that, to put pitch roofs on, uh, on, on office buildings in New York. But oh, and he, he later led the uh, World Trade Center design right. for SOM. Yeah, he uh, he finally came around. <laughs> he, <laughs> to, um, but that's right. He was the World Trade Center architect. But uh, be, we were, you know, being in New York, you know, the Lever House, uh, many, uh, Skidmore had put down some of its best buildings. And Skidmore had brought modernism to uh, corporate America. And Lever House was one of the, first great examples. Um, and it's interesting that SOM had a presence in Portland. Why Portland? It was because of Pietro Belusky. Uh -huh. and, um, and of course, the, uh, you know, Portland is the home to the building that preceded the Lever House back in, what, 1948, the Commonwealth Building. And, yeah. Uh, so SOM was... Um, was I am so glad I worked there. It was I didn't work there for that long, but it was a, it was a big corporate firm. We had people, butlers bringing coffee. They had a stretch limousine for the for the partners, and it's <laughs> <laughs> just over the top. And I mean, the, the lobby was monstrous with travertine, and it was really something. And I had my suits on, and oh boy, so. Um, <laughs> But they had done they had done some beautiful modern buildings, and of course, um, as we found out, they were the architect for the Memorial Coliseum, which was uh, you know a, a really significant project of theirs back in 1960. Yeah, and you know, uh, SOM has seen these different projects in these different eras. Um, do you think there's a kind of connecting thread when you look at these projects in different decades and different cities? Uh, um, uh, it seems like I've heard it said that they carried some of the kind of less is more DNA of, of Mies van der Rohe before them. Um, yeah. For someone who isn't an architect, um, what might you say about what SOM was doing that kind of carried through over the decades? Well, yeah, I mean, Mies van der Rohe, very, uh, lots of glass, uh, steel buildings, um, less, the less is more. Um, the Coliseum is absolutely uh, one of those. And of course, the interesting thing about the Coliseum is that it has kind of a Mies van der Rohe, less is more glass box, but inside of it is 
what we call Le Cabousier, a curving, um, really kind of sensuous concrete form that, that forms the bowl of the building. Yeah. Uh, this was kind of unique for SOM doing, doing that. And I think that was, uh, came a little bit out of the Portland office, but also out of the, uh, the structural engineering, uh, uh, structural engineers involved in the project. So uh, this is a, it's a classic SOM building. Um, and I think it's one of their best buildings on the West Coast. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we could dig in a little bit to the big pieces of the design. Uh, it strikes me in the years that I've written about architecture that um, one thing that uh, characterizes a lot of the best buildings that I've seen or written about is you get the sense that an idea has not been lost, that it's been carried through all the way, that the essence of the design idea has sort of carried through. And this could be true for a movie or a book or other art forms too. But I look at the Coliseum and I think you do too, and just see the, the simplicity of it, the bowl in the box, and then this uh, uh, open curtain configuration as well. So um, yeah. uh, without putting words in your mouth, like I maybe just did, uh, <laughs> um, you know, could you talk about it uh, and what it means to you, the, the, what the essence of that design is? Yeah, well, I I lived in Portland, I don't know, 20 years, uh, and I knew about the Coliseum, but I didn't really know about the Coliseum, and I hadn't really thought about it, uh, to be honest. And so after the left bank, um, I really started, I looked at the building much more carefully. And then we, in our campaign, studied the building. It's all, a lot of this is on our website that we've put up. Um, and, uh, I got to really love this building. And I said, wait a minute, this building, I didn't realize how good this building is, how good architecturally the building is, how beautiful the building is. And, uh, and it, you know, it, it had gone through some iterations where the signage wasn't that great and, you know, hadn't been taken care of. And I, you know, and some, some remodels that weren't, weren't sensitive to the original concept. So, so some of it's a little hard to see, um, and, um, but when you look at, when we all looked at the, we got some original photographs from Julius Schulman, who's a modern architectural photographer, and then also a Seattle-based architect, Art Hoopy. And that also helped to see how brilliant and beautiful this building was by the way, by looking at it through their eyes. And, um, yeah. and the lighting, I mean, they had taken all the cool lighting out of the building. Um, I mean, this thing is like, and, and Hoopy uh, especially fa uh, did a photograph and it looks like a flying saucer had landed in this glass box. I mean, it was just, it gave me goosebumps. And um, I think all of us saw this, wow. And uh, Shulman also has, uh, it's on our, I'm looking at it right now on our website, um, this flying, this uplit flying saucer, um, this beautiful curving form. And uh, yeah, and then of course in the bowl, um, you know, I've been to, you know, I, I'm from Philadelphia and at the Spectrum and we had, um, you know, and the Rose Garden here, um, the, the, the social issue, uh, how uh, Everybody who goes to a game, whether you're, uh, no matter whether you're in the cheap seats or the good seats, you're all coming together on the, on the concourse. And the concourse focuses on the river and the city. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's not like the Rose Garden here where it's just, you know, it's the, 
know, it's a jumble of signage and commercial stuff and whatever. And in the Coliseum, it was really city first, community first. Yeah. And, um, I think that's another brilliant part of this design. And of course, being in the bowl and seeing outside is really unique too. Yeah. I've yeah. never encountered any other arena anywhere where you can see to the outside from your seats like that. And yet yeah. there's a fundamental tragedy too in that so few Portlanders have experienced the the arena that way. Yeah, I tried when my son graduated there, I tried to get the Coliseum to open. I said, please open the curtains. The building is so much better when the curtains are open. And they, you know, they said, well, the curtains are pretty old and they need, you know, need restoration, whatever. The curtains were designed custom for this building. And, um, and they're, you know, they need, they need some, uh, it's, well, heck, the building was built since 1960, so it's uh, 70 years old now, so the curtains need need work as well as, all, as the systems in the building, but uh, the, the bowl with the curtain open is magnificent, and apparently they closed the curtain because of the cigarette smoking back in the 60s, so <laughs> the concourse and it all blow into the basketball arena. But now the people that have spoken there, um, I mean, I think they should keep the curtain open a lot more than they do. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, that's really what makes it its most special. And um, you uh, mentioned it coming from 1960. And uh, um, I wondered if you could talk about this a little bit too. It it, it seems to express a kind of optimism. And, and I think I've even talked sometimes to people about a, a kind of symbolic power you feel from all the light coming in and that it kind of with its concrete bowl almost kind of harkens back to classical architecture like ancient Greece and Rome. And, and um, I don't want to be too corny about it, but I think when you kind of put together the kind of sense of optimism that was coming from that time of the early 60s at JFK and the space program, um, yeah. and then the, the kind of way that that brand of mid-century modernism kind of channels um, classical architecture, it, it, it seems like it's a kind of potentially powerful thing. Yeah, it was great. I, I always felt like I was born in the wrong generation. Um, so, you know, the Mad Men and the Thin Ties and uh, the 1960s Corvette, the cars that were coming out of that era, um, obviously Kennedy with let's look to the future, let's go to the moon. Um, everything was about the future. And uh, modern design was celebrated back then in clothing and, and, and uh, music and um, and certainly architectural design um, houses. And uh, it just, this building embodied that. It was not a traditional building. It didn't have a pitch roof on it. It didn't look like a lot of the stadiums that are getting built. We have a lot of retro stadiums that are looking like, you know, they're built in 1920. Um, yeah. Stadiums that are getting built for baseball stadiums, whatever. This building was unabashedly modern. And and looking to the future and uh, uh, back to the flying saucer. It was about space and uh, it wasn't trying to fit into a, a context. It was just, it was unto itself. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And uh, you've also spent some time doing urban planning and urban design in the past. And uh, yeah. I wonder if you could 
just talk to people a little bit about the context there. Obviously, the Rose Quarter is not the most uh, pleasant place to hang out with the parking garages and so forth. Um, but it seems like it's also an area of town that has a lot of kind of potential is centrally located and, and could really be something in the future. And so um, uh, what about that context that you see um, both the bad and the potential? Yeah, well, I didn't really pick up on this until, you know, later. Well, some time into our campaign. Um, I just looked at the Coliseum and I, I, I didn't live in Portland uh, before 1976. So I, I, in the back of me, I had heard the stories about the neighborhood um, that was demolished for the Coliseum site. And of course, we also had that in South Portland, the whole South Auditorium area. And of course, S. Skidmore owns Merrill again. Where and that was happening all across America, where urban renewal going in and bulldozing quote slums unquote, i.e. historic historic neighborhoods that probably needed maybe the houses need a little paint or something, but uh -huh. they, were, they were functioning streets and neighborhoods and retail and stoops and whatever and communities and um, so. Um, Memorial Coliseum just leveled what what was it eleven or thirteen blocks of uh, of that neighborhood and it was mostly an African American neighborhood and I I wasn't old enough to remember that but the stories are just amazing so here we are now with uh, of course the South Auditorium District in Portland and and the Memorial Coliseum and um, you know this big building with, that was surrounded by parking. Uh, classic yeah. 1960s design and of course that was back in the freeway era where they're bulldozing all these neighborhoods put freeways through yeah so you know we can't you know that's our history um you know we can't go back uh you know it's a it's a, it's a part of our history now it's not a you know we could have done a lot better as we all know so okay so what do we do now do we tear down the Coliseum and build, rebuild that neighborhood? Or do we just keep going? Do we go to the next chapter? And I think we go to the next chapter because I think this building's really good, but um, fill in the, so we don't need to surround the whole building with parking lots, obviously. We can build streets in there. We can build more of a, uh, more of an urban neighborhood. I mean, What's an urban neighborhood? Well, it's the Sunday morning, 10 o'clock in the morning test. Are people on the sidewalk at 10 in the morning on Sunday? <laughs> you go to the Coliseum and the whole Rose Garden and the place is a ghost town unless there's a game there. So, yeah. um, so how can we make that a neighborhood where people live, they work, they dine, and they go to sports? And um, uh, I mean, the old, some of the old baseball stadiums, the one I went to as a kid in Philadelphia, the Philadelphia stadium was dropped right in the middle of, a, of, of downtown, surrounded by housing and streets and people would park for the stadium in these little five car alley spots and whatever. And that and our, our Coliseum uh, in Portland is a little bit like that. Um, so I think that's actually a pretty unique example. Um, so back, again, back in the 60s and 70s, we dropped stadiums in, like in Philadelphia too, South Philadelphia, just parking all around. Um, and I think we can go back into this neighborhood. I'm really excited about the Alpina vision and uh, do a really great neighborhood that where the Coliseum is almost like a centerpiece 
um, and this glass box, glowing glass box in the middle of a very vibrant neighborhood where people, um, where people also live. Yeah, yeah. And uh, maybe finally, uh, of course, you've long been not just an architect, but an activist in one way or another, as we talked about at the beginning with that uh, op-ed piece you wrote. Um, and you've been involved in running for city council and you've been very active campaigning for homeless and affordable housing uh, in addition to the Coliseum preservation campaign. So what might you say to people out there or perhaps to architects out there about getting involved uh, um, and uh, both what you've learned or, um, or, or maybe the importance of getting involved even if you take some lumps along the way that, um, that activism really is, is good for our city. And, and I feel like not necessarily enough architects get involved uh, in the day-to-day -day running of the city or, or making their voice heard. So what's your take on that? Not enough architects are involved. Are involved. Um, I, um, I was working in a firm uh, early in my career and uh, I loved going, I was in LA and I loved going down to look at the Salk Institute. And uh, it, was, it was, I don't know, every time, I, of course, Khan, Louis Kahn I had seen when I was 13 years old and he gave a talk at my school. And yeah. That, Sock was um, just, I've used the word goosebumps once already, but it just gave me goosebumps. It yeah, was, one of the masterworks of American architecture. Complete masterworks. So anyhow, they were going to, um, I heard somebody said they're putting a fence up. They're going to put, they're going to clear cut the eucalyptus grove, which was the primary entry into the Salk Institute, which was a key part of the design and uh, put up this sort of uh, third rate building. Uh, which would have destroyed the whole entry sequence to the building. And, and uh, I just thought it was desecrating a modern masterpiece, desecrating an American cultural icon. And so I was a young architect and I don't know, I just, I couldn't live with myself. I just, um, so I decided to write a letter uh, to, um, I guess, to Jonas Salk and said, please don't, you're desecrating an American landmark. And I had a little drawing this crazy drawing of Monticello with two big boxes on either side of it to make the point <laughs> <laughs> that this is what you're doing to the Salk Institute and there's no difference in American culture between the Salk and Monticello uh, as far as I could see even though Salk was built in 1967 and um, and I cc'd about 80 people um, Louis Kahn's widow and daughter and all and I don't know I but people, architects and, and, you know, journalists and whatever. And then I um, said, okay, I got that off my shoulder. Then people started calling me and, and uh, I got a letter from um, Esther Kahn. I got a call from Louis Kahn's uh, daughter and we launched this major international campaign to save it. We were too late. And if we had been a year earlier, uh, we would have we would have saved that building from uh, from that entry. So I learned a lot on that, and I just I don't know. I just got it in my blood that you know if you're mad, if you're upset with something, do something about it. And we it was amazing we, with a fax machine and Nathaniel Kahn and I. It was amazing what we did. We brought the whole you know we had this letter from all the some of the biggest names in architecture, and it was it was really interesting. It was. Uh, it was um, an exciting time, an exciting process. And I think we did a lot of good. And we opened a lot of eyes to, um, 
to that building and, and uh, to the potential for that building and how important the building is. We got into the National Trust. As they were saying, well, we don't do modern buildings. Well, they do do modern buildings now. And it was in part because of that campaign that uh-huh. buildings built in 1967 are just as important in American culture as buildings built in 1920. Yeah. So, um, so I... I um, I got it in my blood. And then of course the Coliseum came along and then I've been very interested in homelessness. And actually the Coliseum kicked off my political campaign and I tried to run, uh, get on city council because I think an architect should be in government. Um, but um, I, um, yeah, it's, it's amazing the, how, the impact we had even with, uh, you know, again, back that was fax machines before the internet. But um, you can make a difference, and uh, and you know we're we're coming from a bit of a different perspective uh, as architects from others, and uh, I just uh, I encourage people to uh, to get involved in the community. It's uh, it's 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 a great experience. It just enriches. Uh, it's enriched my life, um, and um, I uh, I'm really glad I did it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I am too. And, uh, you know, I was laughing to myself uh, a second ago when you mentioned coming from Philadelphia that, uh, you know, of course, the 77 championship was the Blazers against the Sixers. (laughs) And, uh, you know, you were a 76ers fan and and all these years later, uh, a Philadelphia 76ers fan helped save Memorial Coliseum, the home of the Blazers. I had just moved to Portland that, that, that fall in 19, I think I wheeled in across driving across the country and on November, 1976. And the first thing that happened was my 76ers were beaten at the Coliseum. (laughs) 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 Yeah. I think of like a a dejected Dr. J in the locker room there sometimes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, It was pretty good that uh, I became a Portlander that night. That's yeah. great. And, you know, Dr. J eventually got his ring. Yeah, everything worked out fine. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Well, uh, Stuart Emmons, thank you so much for joining us on In Search of Portland. Thank you, Brian. It's been a pleasure. In Search of Portland is also sponsored by Capstone Partners, which plans, finances, implements, and manages commercial real estate investments for investors and organizations across the Pacific Northwest. Capstone's roots run deep with decades of experience and solid relationships. Living and working in Portland and Seattle means this local company is poised to find and act on unique opportunities that outside firms never even see. For more information, visit capstone-partners.com. Rukai Adams, thanks for joining us on In Search of Portland. So glad to be here, Brian. You're one of my favorite Portlanders. This is really exciting. Right back at you in every way. Um, 
first, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your work with the Meyer Memorial Trust. I mean, I could be doing an interview with you just about that, but uh, the organization's just been building a new headquarters in North Portland, and it really strikes me that with all the stuff that's happened in 2020, from the pandemic to George Floyd and beyond, that there's probably more opportunity than ever for the the Meyer Memorial Trust to really get involved on a lot of fronts and and helping people, and maybe if we're lucky, even affecting some kind of positive change. So um, can you just tell us a little bit, I wanted to bring you here to talk about Outbound Vision in the Coliseum, but um, you have a very interesting job, and so I couldn't not ask you a little bit about that too. Yeah, so the Meyer Trust is uh, one of the largest private foundations in the state of Oregon. Uh, Our original benefactor was Fred Meyer, the founder of Fred Meyer Grocery Stores. Um, When he passed away, he left all of his assets to the people and said just improve their lives and left a pretty wide open framework for the future trustees and professionals who would uh, steward his philanthropy. And over the years, we have uh, laser begun to laser focus on improving the lives of Oregonians, not just in grant making, but also in how we manage the wealth that Fred Meyer left to the people. And my job at, at Meyer Memorial Trust is to steward that wealth, um, to grow it, to protect it, to think deeply about its purpose. And uh, one one part of the wealth of the organization, people think of it as money, and, and that's actually not not true. Uh, wealth is not a noun; it's a verb. <laughs> and it requires action, and um, and and even if you don't think you're acting with wealth, you are. So so it's a verb in my mind. Um, so the most interesting part of my work is to think about how we can really how 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 the endowment itself can be the most philanthropic part of our business, not the charity. Um, so I think deeply about that, having been a beneficiary of the philanthropy of, of Fred Meyer. Um, the, oh, wow. the trust gave to the Boys and Girls Club on uh, Northeast Portland on MLK and Killingsworth. And I went to that Boys and Girls Club before it was so fancy and it funded self-enhancement. And I'm a graduate of self-enhancement program, funded Albina Head Start. I went to Albina Head Start. So it's been really humbling to to return home to care for this um endowment that had that helped me and helped my family and has helped so many Oregonians so basically my job is to make money from money without being a total jerk (laughs) and to do that in alignment with the mission and Fred Meyer's gift to the people of Oregon that's great that's great and you referred a couple of times there to your own ties to the neighborhood and and past and and family roots here and uh uh, I wanted to ask you or, or bring us back for a moment to the tour I took with you a couple of years ago of Memorial Coliseum, and it was a powerful moment to me when we met under the awning and you kind of stomped your feet for a second and, and you said, my grandparents' house was right here. Um, and, you know, uh, I'm a lover of Memorial Coliseum, and so... It kind of, you know, in a way, it felt a little bit like a stomach punch. I'm not trying to sound like the victim, but um, but I I wanted to be challenged because I wanted in in any building that I learn about or write about or do a podcast about, I want to know and see those layers of history. And so I wonder if you could tell the people listening just a little bit anything 
they might you think they might want to know about your grandparents' house or the neighborhood it was it belonged to, whether it was, you know, was it a was it a craftsman or a Victorian or was it a some little um farmhouse or or what might have been like to be in that place, say, uh when around the time they, they would have bought it? Nineteen forty. So, so it's a little more complicated than that. Our our conversation was brief, but when my great grandmother moved to Portland, she rented the attic of a house that was right about where the Coliseum Complex was. I that, see. that was her landing place, and that neighborhood in Lower Albina was was like the Ellis Island of Portland. And at that time, it was when my great grandmother arrived. It was still largely white Eastern European uh, migrants, immigrants to the United States who settled there. Some of them were Jewish, some of them were German, some were Polish. But that part of the city, the east bank of the Willamette River, was a place where newcomers to the United States who settled in Portland lived, just south of Uh there, Protus Row. You know the story of the Swedes and Danes who lived there. And um, up to where Meyer Memorial Trust's new uh, headquarters is located at Vancouver and Tillamook, um, that area was Eastern European and over time as black migrants moved to Portland to work in the shipbuilding industries or um, on the railroad because that neighborhood was adjacent to the work and most of the folks who moved here didn't have cars, it was a neighborhood where they settled. And what's remarkable, Brian, about that time is in the Jim Crow South where my family left four generations ago, Black people were being dragged and murdered for looking at white people, right? And Uh my family moved here into a community that was largely white, Eastern European or Jewish immigrants, and they lived in the same neighborhood. The house that my great-grandmother rented the attic apartment in had one door, it had one bathroom. the, what, the, the thing that we've lost in the history of Lower Albina is actually a multicultural and diverse neighborhood. Um, uh-huh. but, but the dynamics over time of the neighborhood changed. Anyway, so my grandmother um, arrived here. She rented an attic apartment. Ultimately, she ended up buying a house just north of there what in what African-Americans call the low end and, and what hipster kids call Mississippi Avenue now. <laughs> and my great grandmother, my grandmother, when she bought a home, ended up buying a home in a neighborhood called Walnut Park, where the family ended up congregating. And most people now today know that neighborhood as Alberta Arts, but when it was historically black, it was called Walnut Park. So she arrived. My great grandmother Inez arrived in Portland, rented an attic apartment. She worked in the Garment District, which is the Pearl today. Uh-huh. And so that neighborhood in Lower Albina was good because she could walk over the steel bridge or ride her bicycle over the steel bridge to work. That is why that right. neighborhood was attractive. And it was affordable because at that time it was still in the floodplain of the river. It had not been lifted and elevated yet. So if you were wealthy in Portland or had been here for a long time, you didn't want to live in that neighborhood because the river flooded, flooded it from uh-huh. time to time. Yeah, so just it, like downtown used to. Exactly. So there are all these really interesting migrants coming from Eastern Europe and then African-Americans migrating from the Jim Crow South and really living in peace in the same way that we know that those communities coexisted at Vanport and Giles Lake in northwest Portland. So there, or Giles Lake, there are all these places around Portland when the rest of the country was roiling in racial strife. We actually had these thriving communities with um, integrated schools and families that lived in, in the same household. So I don't know what the house looked like 
that my great grandmother rented. But I know that the room, the attic that she rented, had a pitched roof, and there was a window that looked west on the cityscape. Mm-hmm. And she wrote in her Bible that uh, when she arrived, "Dear God, I hope I've made the right decision in moving my family to this place." So that was her oh, thought wow. in that neighborhood. Um, so, so I don't know, but I also know, having grown up in Portland with lots of families who've been here longer than mine, I'm a fourth generation Oregonian. I have friends who are sixth and seventh generation Oregonians, and they still yep. remember the street number of their house underneath the Coliseum. So there was a street, I think, called Benton Avenue or Benton Street that a lot of black homeowners um, own their land. So Serena Stoudemire is a, a local Portlander who's prominent. Her family owned a, a house there. I used to work with her. Yeah, so she knows the street number. They still, when people ask her, what's your home in Portland? They'll say the Benton Avenue address. Um, so just really deep, complicated history. Also, a lot uh-huh. of African-American men liked that neighborhood because they worked in that grain elevator um, that is right adjacent to the Moda Center. Yes, um, I believe it's the Dreyfus. The Dreyfus facility, that is right, yes. So there were people who went to work in the Dreyfus facility, people who crossed the bridge, women who crossed the bridge to work in the garment industry, men who crossed the bridge to work at the um, train station, and then the shipbuilding industries north and south along the river. It was really lively. We know that there were, there were jazz clubs and musicians who came to the neighborhood. There was a large schoolhouse that was just south of where the Moda Center is now. So uh-huh. we know that it was affordable, uh, single-family homes, and the Eastern European families that lived there welcomed Black migrants um, because we all needed each other to to survive. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, how, how funny it is or, or how kind of ironic it is that that, that neighborhood... Um, provides a lot of, or can provide a lot of inspiration uh, about placemaking, uh, the scale of it, and and the mix of uses, and, and a lot of the pieces of what we think of, what urban planners, progressive urban planners might today think of as having some of the pieces of a, of a healthy and vibrant neighborhood. So maybe that could be a transition to asking you but about the, but, Brian, but there itself. Is, there is one important point, though, that uh, I think we and I have never talked about all of our planning and trying to create diverse, thriving communities is a little bit of a like a back to the future type situation <laughs> um, because Lower Albino was that. And one of the reasons why it was vulnerable to um, the use of eminent domain and modernization, I think, is that while the rest of the comp- country was roiling in racial strife, we had this community that was thriving and some people believe that what what very powerful people wanted to do was to end that thriving multiracial community, not necessarily to, you know, be totally racist toward black people alone. It was that it was the multiculturalism that was really the challenge at a time in the country where that was really, um, really threatening to some people. But the important detail about Laura Albina and the reason why it, it's become such a flashpoint is after World War II, when a lot of the Eastern European neighbors to black folks in Lower Albina who were German, when Germany lost the war, uh-huh. a lot of those people became white. They uh-huh. shed their German heritage, but we stayed black. And so the perception of a neighborhood as those 
white pe- those Germans who became white Americans left the neighborhood and what was what ended up being a distilled black population, the neighborhood had the perception of being black, but for most of its sort of modern Portland history after the city of Portland became one city, um, it actually was a multiracial um, community. It was yeah, really after yeah. World War II that it changed. And what you're saying makes sense as I think a little bit more broadly to include something like South Portland and the um, uh, urban renewal district around Keller Auditorium and and that whole neighborhood. That too, if I'm not mistaken, was an an immigrant neighborhood and and some might have said a vibrant one, uh, even if uh, uh, it was also called a place of blight or whatever other uh, language they wanted to use to justify their real estate uh, development and and that sort of thing. But um, uh, uh, this is a whole nother conversation we could get into, but I think it is worth pausing to say um, that um, uh, the more one learns about urban renewal in the mid-20th century, the, the more disgusting it kind of becomes um, as just a kind of power money grab, um, you know, that was maybe disguised as as progressive urban planning in some ways. And so um, I think the the Rose Quarter and, and the former Lower Albina area and the area around um, that sort of South Portland, South Downtown area both still suffer from that today because they, they did all that damage they wiped away so much and they they didn't the history has shown that they created very flawed places from an, a, a place making urban planning perspective I agree and I think it, it's evidence that places have a kind of memory and you can feel it when you're in south in the south side of the west part of Portland you can feel that something is off there with all the freeways zipping by and the streets that are crazy and they're dangerous and you feel that same way in Lower Albina, as the freeway cuts through and there are these kind of treacherous overpasses and the widening of, of interstate caused a number of challenges for pedestrians and bicyclists. And it feels it feels haunted, like we're missing, mm-hmm. like we've destroyed something and tried to overlay an urban footprint. And the thing that was destroyed is peeking up and it makes us uncomfortable. So uh-huh. something, it tweaks something in us. Um, so I feel like places have, they have history and they sort of reach through time and, and shake us a little bit. And I feel that in Lower Albina, I mean, some of it is because I know, I know a lot of the history, but even if I didn't know, I think I'd still have a sense that something strange, um, some, we're, we paved over something there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so how does that uh, sort of factor in or, or what can you tell us about um Albina vision and and um, sort of creating a, a future for that place that remembers the past, but um, is a is a place people want to be for itself today too. Uh, how's that going? Uh, you know, you've got a whole bunch of different um, variables there. You've got an effort to widen the freeway and possibly, um, you know cap some of that and restore some blocks there, some buildable blocks, and then you've got a whole bunch of other kind of city and state politics, I'd imagine. So, um, you know, uh, ha- where are you in this struggle and how's it going? Yeah, struggle is the right way to put it. One, one of the things that I've learned in this work um, is that we have gotten comfortable during the last year of these protests about ra- racial justice in understanding the 
consequence of injustice, even in urban design, right? We, we've, we've gotten there. What we, we, we continue to wrestle with is what we need to do to fix it. And mm-hmm. Lower Albina is a perfect encapsulation of the many ways that we use the urban form to destroy each other and harm one another. So mm. the uh, bulldozing of Minnesota Avenue to make way for I-5 and the thousands of homes that were destroyed in order to, to build a trench highway for passers through, yeah. we're reckoning with um, the, the primacy of the car in our urban design. I mean, we essentially said, these cars moving through here are more important than black people, so move. Right, mm-hmm. and then we said, okay, this this sports facility for the Buckaroos is pretty important. So move. Oh, and these parking lots are more important than your home. So get the fuck out of here. Sorry for the language. Yeah. And then and 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 then we widened interstate to allow more commerce to move north to the ports. And again, the same message was this commerce or or, or these trucks are more important. So get out. And when you accumulate that together, it is a kind of toxic urban design soup. Mm-hmm. So all of this is to say the work of the Albina vision, we thought that it was a vision for the redevelopment of an urban space. What we've discovered is that it's a vessel for having some of the most difficult conversations we've had that we have to have as a community about whether or not our urban format is for people or it's for cars, mm-hmm. whether mm-hmm. it's uh, for empty parking lots or do we use those spaces to provide housing so that we have more affordability across the board in the city during a housing crisis? So some of the most difficult conversations that we're having as a city, they're encapsulated in the discussion about uh, Lower Albina. So with that said, I think things are going relatively well and that we've, I think, made a pretty good case about why we need to think a lot more about the spending on expanding freeways and urban centers. And if we mm-hmm. do, how we can return the surface level to the people. Um, we've learned a lot about how how we treated each other in the middle of the 20th century. We also treated the river, so the Superfund site and the cleanup requirements in the river. Um, so we've been pulled into the environmental discussion about um, uh, taking care of, of our planet and our city. Um, but with all that said, we've started the planning to redevelop the school district property. Um, we are in negotiations to acquire several multi multifamily units nearby. We are in design planning to build an affordable housing unit just north of Broadway. So the work is progressing. That's great. Yeah, it's it's terrifying in that I think we finally got people to take it seriously, and now we're having to fight off the carpetbagging um developers who want to splash in and steal our ideas and just recreate the pearl. Um, But in the end, the spirit of the work is to get us to take better care of each other and to be comfortable talking openly about what Urban Renewal did, about the racist statements and behavior of Portland City Council. If we can't speak openly about it, we actually can't fix it. And that brings me to the Coliseum. Yeah, yeah. So... The the memory I had of meeting you there under the awning and hearing about your family a little bit and, and where they lived was powerful. And then um, it was 
also powerful when we took a tour through that building through this arena that you have every reason in the world to have a lot of negative associations, deep negative associations with, and yet you expressed to me uh, a sense that, that you saw what I saw in some of the architecture whether it relates to its kind of simple beauty and transparency or as the building could maybe, if we did things right, be uh, functionally in service of, that it could be useful to the neighborhood. And so, um, you know, what can you tell me about and us about how the Coliseum uh, that the, uh, a kind of best case scenario where a new albina and the Coliseum exist together and, and form a better neighborhood. Right. So, um, so to be a black woman in America is to is to become a master at or or to become skilled at accepting uh, many truths. <laughs> right. So, in our democracy, as with that edifice that is the Memorial Coliseum, there are soul-crushing truths that I have to bear every day. Mm -hmm. At the same time, there are inspiring, there are, there, are, there are seeds of hope and my vision can see beyond the pain to something greater. So I feel in this moment about our democracy the same way I feel about that building. <laughs> uh <-oh. laughs> it, you know, that it, it does have some painful reminders and it, it has... Its foundations are poured into a place that has deep black history, deep immigrant history, has deep native history. And we have attempted to erase that with mm -hmm. asphalt and cement and architecture, to be honest. Yeah. But you're right. And when I walked in there and seeing the light come through the mid-century building, some of it is that I'm a ringer. I love the mid-century the mid architecture. So I, the, the design aesthetic really uh, pulled on my heart. But... The thing I want us to do is to be honest about what we're monumenting, right? Um, ostensibly, we call it the Veterans Memorial, but we destroy the homes of black veterans to build a monument to white veterans. Uh -huh. And so my first thought about how it can be healing is to, to be really thoughtful about what we're monumenting. You make me think uh, that I, I, for a number of years, I have wished that they hadn't changed the name officially to Veterans Memorial Coliseum in 2011 or so, that, that the building you and I and, and other people grew up with was just called Memorial Coliseum. And I actually kind of appreciate the the, the less specific original name in that um, why couldn't it be a memorial to veterans in its original conception and be a memorial to some other things, to some other histories as well? It's like uh, if Al somehow I feel like if Albina Vision was able to really become successful, I think as part of it we should change the name back from Veterans Memorial Coliseum to Memorial Coliseum and, and think about how other memorials could join those sunken uh, garden uh, veteran memorials that are there. I, I don't want to not honor veterans. You know, my grandfather landed at Normandy, um, but um, I don't see why it has to only be a memorial to veterans. And, and uh, I think there's, I think one thing I remember talking about 
with you that day was the idea that there's something so wonderful about telling stories, even negative stories, but um, there's an opportunity there to exist in a lot more storytelling. And maybe there's a necessity to there, a a kind of moral necessity or whatever you want to call it. But, you know, I I think the notion of memorials ought to be kind of maybe broadened, right? (laughs) I agree. You know, I I can imagine uh, an outcome where the entire Lower Albina is a is a memorial to veterans, and 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 it's expressed in different ways in the in the in the health of the river and the views from the river and the buildings that are there. So I want to actually expand the veteran concept and not have it contained in an individual building. Um, but I, I, the I, the thing I want to say about the building is that Portland and Oregon joined the union after. Um, Slavery, and so we don't have the the, the Robert E. Lee statues, right? All over the <laughs> but the Memorial Coliseum is probably the equivalent for Black people here. Wow. Okay. Wow. So, well, you know, I just saw a photo uh, on the cover of National Geographic magazine yesterday. Uh, their kind of photo of the year, and it was um, a photo of the Robert Lee E. Lee statue in Richmond, um, covered in paint, and having George Floyd's image projected onto it and so you know um we can't change what those connotations are and maybe in a way we just have to live with the fact that some people in our community are always going to feel that way but just to be honest about it yeah so so the storytelling is no storytelling is negative what we want is truth telling right right because when we don't tell the truth what you end up doing is harming us in order to keep to maintain your comfort with with it so what I'd like is for us to tell the truth about it. I mean, look, Albina's a Latin name. That wasn't the native name, right? So so Albina got got renamed, got Christopher Columbus into the Rose Quarter. I mean, I don't I've, I've read city council minutes trying to find exactly when the, that got renamed and I and there was no renaming. What essentially happened was the owners of the Trailblazers wanted to rebrand what was the historically black neighborhood. And then TriMet went along and renamed that transfer station, the Rose Quarter station. And then everyone just went along with it. Um, wow. But Yeah, so there's this really messed up, not, not just the urban renewal part of it, but the ensuing 20 years of just slowly a practice of erasing the history and the connections there. But with all that said, I think the, the exciting thing that the Albina Vision work could help us do is to get closer to the Berlin model of truth-telling and, and not necessarily tearing down monuments and memorials, but learning to tell the story directly and frankly, because that's how we heal. And I, I can love imagine, that. Yeah, I can, ima- I can imagine Laura Albina being, being a, a monument to veterans because that's a lot of the reason why a lot of African-Americans came to, to Oregon. Um, my grandfather was trained in metal work, and that's why he came here to work in shipbuilding after serving in the military. So I'm okay with the veteran memorial. I just don't want it to be contained in that building. I want it to be more expansive uh, and more inspirational. But I yeah, see. I see. I love that, and I love the building. I mean, it it, it um, it's stunning when sun is is passing through the windows and that sort of prisms that are created in the light there in its simplicity, and the the view gazing upon the the, the western skyline of the city, and the fact that that part of 
the land was elevated and lifted above the, the floodplain, so the view is relatively high. It really is something to see, and I, I don't think we should destroy a beautiful thing for its origins. I think we, we the obligation that the architecture puts upon us is to tell the truth about its placement. Yeah. Yeah, that's very well said, and and that too I find very meaningful. Um, uh, we're gonna wrap up here in a sec, but maybe real quick, um, have you ever had a, a an event you've attended at the building, whether it's a concert thirty years ago or a Blazer game or something else that that you had fun at, um, despite all that we talked about, or or have you deliberately not gone there? <laughs> oh no, I go there all the time, and I'm reflective of of the history all the time. I mean. Another thing that is true about the power of the place is that the Rose Quarter, whether you like it or not, with the Memorial Coliseum and the Moda Center, is probably the attracts the most diverse cross section of Portlanders, uh-huh. right? In the sports facilities and the concerts and the gatherings, the high school graduations, it's the place where the fabric of the city actually becomes the diverse multicultural Portland that we imagine. That is where it's happening. So I love that. Yeah, so I am in there all the time, but I'll tell you a memory I have of the building. When I was in high school, I was a runner. I was a, ran track, and there every year there's an indoor track meet, high school track meet that happened at the Memorial Coliseum, and they it was such a pitched track because the inside yeah. was so small. And some of my fondest memories of being in high school was the annual indoor track meet at the Memorial Coliseum and the relay races of trying to hand the baton off on a pitched track uh, on the lower level of the Coliseum. Like, I loved that experience. That's so great. And, you know, that's part of the experience that formed the the beginnings of Nike. You know, Phil Knight and yeah. Bill Bowerman shook hands on forming Blue Ribbon Sports while they were watch, uh, at a coffee shop across from the track meet at the Coliseum. They were watching, seeing, you know, the likes of Steve Prefontaine run there and stuff. So you're part of a legacy. And I, I thought a few minutes ago also you had mentioned uh, uh, Serena Stoudemire and her, her memories of, uh, um, you know, that neighborhood and stuff. I saw her cousin Damon placed for a state championship in that building you know it's just funny how it all comes around and how it's all tied together it is all tied together and I, I actually think that the, the the tension that we're feeling in Portland with our form of government with the Black Lives Matter protests with the I think the the general unrest we're feeling in this year I think it really is all centered in the kind of healing that could come from a neighborhood like Albina we yeah. need something big and visionary and together, and we need it now. Yeah, yeah. Amen to that. Um, well, uh, with that, I will say, uh, Rukaya Adams, uh, thank you so, so, so much for joining us on In Search of Portland. Thanks, Brian. I can't wait to hear the podcast. Bye. All right. <laughs> Another quick word of thanks to our show's sponsor, Mutual Materials. If you're a homeowner, 
you might want to go online and check out Mutual's Natural Stone Catalog at mutualmaterials.com forward slash resources. You can also visit their showroom, for now by appointment that is, at 2175 Northwest Raleigh Street. For over 120 years, Mutual Materials has been building beauty that lasts across the Northwest. All right. Thanks again to Rukaya Adams and Stuart Emmons for talking with me. Before we leave you, I'd like to talk about two things. First, I can't resist telling you a little bit more about the Coliseum's performance history and those who have graced its stage. And I know some of you may be wondering, where do things stand now for the Coliseum? As it happens, I'm on an advisory committee for the City of Portland's planned restoration of the building, so I can get you up to speed. First, though, let's have some fun with Memorial Coliseum's music history, because the Beatles were just the start. The Rolling Stones concert at the Coliseum in 1966 was part of a 30-city tour supporting their album Aftermath. The Beach Boys played at the Coliseum a month after the Stones, and more importantly, it was just three months after the release of the Beach Boys' masterpiece, Pet Sounds. Perhaps the two most iconic R&B artists of the 1960s, Ray Charles and James Brown, played at the Coliseum in 1961 and 63, respectively. James Brown's concert came just after his first top 20 pop hit, Prisoner of Love, had just been released. We mustn't forget country star Johnny Cash, either. When the so-called Man in Black played the Coliseum in 1965, it was just a year after the release of his classic song, I Walk the Line. In 1967, two more seminal rock bands, The Who and The Doors, performed at the Coliseum. Pete Townsend, Roger Daltrey and company were there promoting their album The Who Sell Out and its biggest hit, I Can See for Miles, which is appropriate for an arena where you can watch the sunset from inside. The Doors were at perhaps the zenith of their popularity while visiting, having released their first two albums that same year, including hits like Light My Fire. In 1968, the Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin, sang at Memorial Coliseum, promoting her biggest hit, You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman. That same year, the all-too-short career of the great Jimi Hendrix included a stop at Memorial Coliseum. Just three years earlier, a then-unknown Hendrix had played at Portland's Crystal Ballroom as a guitarist in Little Richard's touring band, the Jimi Hendrix Experience's Coliseum performance came a month before the release of Hendrix's third and final studio album, Electric Ladyland. Let's listen in for a moment to the Jimi Hendrix Experience at Memorial Coliseum playing the song Fire from the band's seminal debut album, Are You Experienced? Coliseum's heyday was arguably not the 60s, but the 70s, featuring the tops of both the entertainment and sporting worlds. In 1972, motorcycle-riding daredevil Evil Knievel successfully jumped 12 cars and two vans with his Harley-Davidson. It was Knievel's 13th jump of that year, and, 
as that unlucky number may have foreshadowed, a broken hand during the landing at the Coliseum assured it was his last. Throughout the 1970s, iconic music acts continually arrived. 1970 alone saw Led Zeppelin and Elvis Presley take the Memorial Coliseum stage. Zeppelin's show was to promote its seminal Led Zeppelin II album, including songs like Whole Lot of Love. Elvis's performance at the Coliseum was one year into his comeback, not to mention the point at which he began wearing jumpsuits and capes. Ike and Tina Turner's 1972 Coliseum concert came just two months after a Grammy Award for their version of Proud Mary. Pink Floyd's 1972 concert was only about five months before their classic album Dark Side of the Moon was released. When Michael Jackson appeared at Memorial Coliseum in 1973 with the Jackson 5, he had just scored his first chart-topping solo hit, Ben. That same year, The Grateful Dead played the first of four Memorial Coliseum shows. Elton John was there in 1973 and 1974, the height of his stardom. Frank Sinatra's 1975 Memorial Coliseum concert came on the heels of a comeback, while David Bowie, by the time of his 1976 show, had emerged from his glam rock Ziggy Stardust period and had just released the classic album Station to Station. Fleetwood Mac played the Coliseum in 1977 exactly seven months after the release of their classic album Rumors. That same year, Marvin Gaye played the Glass Palace in support of his chart-topping single, Got to Give It Up. Now, we talked at the beginning of the show about the Blazers and the 1977 NBA championship. From there, the story is bittersweet. Bill Walton won the MVP award in 1978 as the team defended its title with 50 wins in its first 60 games. But then Walton got injured, and the season went down the tubes. Not only that, but he stayed injured throughout most of the rest of his career, and he had a bitter breakup with the Blazers. Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist David Halberstam even wrote a classic book about the downfall, The Breaks of the Game. Bob Dylan's 1978 show came at the end of nearly four straight years of touring, but shortly afterward, he converted to Christianity, and for the next four years, Dylan played only religious music. At the other end of the pop music spectrum, the Bee Gees performed two sold-out concerts at Memorial Coliseum in the summer of 1979, fresh off hits like Stayin' Alive. In the 1980s and the first half of the 90s, big concerts kept on coming. Queen was there in 1980 and 1982, Diana Ross in 1983, Stevie Wonder in 1986, Billy Joel and the Grateful Dead each played the Coliseum on three occasions that decade, and Van Halen on four different ones. As heavy metal took hold in the 1980s, a host of spandex-clad bands began to appear. Motley Crue, The Scorpions, Aerosmith, ACDC, Judas Priest, Metallica. Then in 1987, it was singer Whitney Houston appearing in support of her second album, Whitney, boasting four number one singles. The late 80s and early 90s also brought the second great era of Trailblazers basketball, led by Hall of Fame guard Clyde Drexler, alongside franchise legends like Terry Porter and Jerome Kersey. That's the era I got to witness in person a few times. The Blazers were never quite able to bring home the championship, but for three years, they were mighty close. They reached the NBA Finals in 1990, but lost to Isaiah Thomas's Detroit Pistons. The next year, Portland had the league's best regular season record, but stumbled in the conference finals against Magic Johnson's Los Angeles Lakers. Then in 1992, the Blazers lost in the finals to Michael Jordan's Bulls. But greatness isn't defined solely by trophy cases. 
The Blazers of this era were flat out fun to watch, racing down the court with a fast break offense that often ended in dunks. In the early 21st century, two of the most famous names to take the Memorial Coliseum stage were not musicians or athletes. In 2001, His Holiness the Dalai Lama spoke to 10,000 enrapt guests at the Coliseum. His talk followed a whirlwind tour of activities across the city, including another address before 25,000 at Pioneer Courthouse Square. In March of 2008, then-Senator Barack Obama made his first speech in Portland before 13,000 at the Coliseum. It was three months before Obama secured the Democratic nomination and 10 months before he became President of the United States. Obama remains the only American president to have spoken at Memorial Coliseum. Let's listen to a bit of that speech. But if we do stand together, if we lock arm in arm, if we seize this moment and say we are all Americans and we all believe in a better future and we all were willing to fight for it, if we say that, then I promise you we will not just win Oregon, We will not just win this nomination. We will not just win the general election. But you and I together, we will change this country and we will change the world. God bless you all. Thank you. Now finally, let's talk about where things stand for the Coliseum and its restoration. The good news is that over the past decade, the city of Portland has already spent several million dollars in refurbishing the building, including new lighting, a new roof, an upgraded video board, and a reconfigured entry sequence. The bad news is that after finally allocating funds for a full-scale restoration of the Coliseum and even hiring an architect, acclaimed Chicago-based firm Perkins & Will, the city saw that money largely disappeared during the pandemic and recession. Even so, plans are moving forward with a series of more modest additional investments, and today the Coliseum is already turning a profit. What I'm really waiting for the most, though, is for them to fix the curtain mechanism. Because as I've mentioned, the tragedy of this building is how few people have experienced Memorial Coliseum the way it was intended, with a wonderful view from the arena seats to the outside. The problem is that the black fabric curtain mechanism blocking the view is 60 years old, and the people operating the arena are reluctant to open the curtains for fear of it getting stuck. But once that curtain mechanism is refurbished, I hope the open position can become the default, making this a greenhouse for 12,000 people, or as Allen Ginsberg put it in his wonderful poem, The New World Auditorium. In Search of Portland has been produced by X-Ray FM. You can listen online at xraypod.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to the station and especially producer Jonathan covington Brem. Thanks also to our sponsors, Mutual Materials and Capstone Partners. As always, a big thank you goes to In Search of Portland's talented collaborators, including songwriter Chad Clark and his band Beauty Pill for providing music and illustrator Nikolai Kruger for providing original artwork to go with each show. And a final thank you to my partner, Valerie Smith, who has acted as an editor and a sounding board for this entire podcast and its upcoming companion book. In the meantime, thanks again for listening, and please join us next time on In Search of Portland. Adios for now. <laughs>